Well, take your Bible and join me in the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 90 through 106 today. So we're not going to be looking at a single psalm in particular. As much as we're going to be looking at the fourth book of the Psalter in an overview. Now, before I begin on this journey with you, let me say I don't want to make too much of the book divisions. Uh, I do think that you can go too far and try to fit things into certain areas and ways that, well, it's just more of, it just shows you more of my ingenuity than the Lord, and that's not what I want to do. I just want you to see the whole Psalter and see how certain sections of the book of Psalms are where they are. And hopefully you'll agree with me that you believe, too, that they're there where they are on purpose. The book of Psalms in itself was written through a period of probably 900 years. So we're looking at a conglomeration of almost a millennia of writing when we wind up with 150 Psalms in our Psalter. Now, through this course of time, through this 900 years, the Psalms had a life uh, that they lived while they were being written. So, for instance, David would have a psalm. Many of the early psalms are attributed to David, and that's where the, the book of Psalms really uh, began. But after David, you have other writers and other psalms that uh, would be compiled together with this. Primarily, we see David instrumental in being the, the one that God moved for inspiration to have most of those early psalms. So he would have a song that he would hand off to his choir master, his head choir master, who would then take and put that to music. And in their temple, in their worship, they would have those songs that would come forward as Israel worshipped Jehovah on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And so as the psalms unfold, you have, you have a, a book being compiled together. And I am convinced that the placement of each psalm, the order of them, where the psalms sit, that God's hand was on that placement as well. Just as much as it was on the inspiration of the very words themselves, the order in which we have them, I believe God was very much involved in putting all that together from 1 to 150. Psalm 1 gives us kind of the prelude, if you will, to the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, in his law that he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. I'm picturing a palm tree right now. What are you picturing? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of, maybe it's a date palm. Date palms. You're going to get some good dates when you go to Jericho. She's going to Israel, I'm jealous, in a good way, with a godly jealousy for her. Pray for her travels, but uh, get some good dates when you go to Jericho, uh, and the little fig dates. Those are yummy, yummy. Palm trees. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his date palms and his, his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chafe which the wind driveth away. You see, there's a stark contrast. So when we look at the first psalm in the Psalter, we see where we're going. There's a right way and a wrong way. There's a way of righteousness, and there's a, the way of the world. There's a way that leads to God's blessing. There's a way that leads to destruction. And that is given very clearly at the beginning of the book of Psalms. As the Psalms unfold, the very next Psalm that we're uh, confronted with in the book is a royal Psalm that deals with 
God's king on this earth as his representative ruling and governing. And that king is David. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. So not only is David the king of Israel, but it's forward looking to that day when Jesus, the Messiah, will rule and reign. David's son. And the Davidic covenant uh, backs the Psalms, the Psalter, in, in a very profound way. So as Israel is making decisions on do I want the blessed way or do I want the chafe way? Do I want the way of God or do I want the way of the world? They're making decisions all throughout this 900 plus years that the book of Psalms was written and then compiled together. And as the Psalms unfold, you almost see the life of Israel unfolding before your eyes. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold at times. It's, it's heart-rending to consider some of the things, the depths that the psalmist goes into. It's a very honest and open book when it comes to walking with God. And if we as believers can get a better grasp on the entirety of the book, it will help us when we start to break down individual psalms to see where they all fit. So with that, we're approaching book four. I think we've already studied through book one, book two, book three. Book one, many of them were David's songs. Book two, we began to see a little more of the depths of lament. And you have psalms that begin to, to pour out their soul. You know, my soul, uh, trust in God. And, and you really get to the question, why do the wicked prosper and and it seems like my enemies are against me. And Lord, I'm trying to serve you, but protect me. And, and you have the psalmist calling out and lifting his heart up to God, leading the nation in worship to do that. You have psalms that talk about God's judgment and how he has handed them over to their enemies. Book three was a very difficult book. So as we begin, we, we begin on a high point, right? We begin thinking about the way of God and and his king, and, and how good he is, and if we'll just follow him, everything will be okay. And then as we get into the book of Psalms, we find out that life isn't always peaches and cream, that there's difficulty that comes. Sometimes we make the wrong decision in following the Lord, and we give in to the lust of our flesh, and we wind up under his chastening hand, and we're in a dark time. Maybe the wicked around us seem to be prospering. Maybe our soul feels like it's a million, a million miles away from God. And so as the Psalms begin to get down into those depths, of where we live, there's always a call back to God to say, even though as bad as things might be, I'm still going to praise Him. I'm still going to trust God. All the way through book three, there were many, many laments. And book three is the darkest by far of all of the books of the Psalter. Now, there's five books of the Psalms. Many have corresponded that with the five books of the Pentateuch Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Count with me. If the book if book one is Genesis, the beginnings, and we see creation and God's works, book two would be Exodus, we see his deliverance and his salvation. Uh, Leviticus, we see uh, the laws of the Lord, and when we go away from those, that's where the darkness comes and the chastening happens because we don't live by what God tells us to do. Book four would correspond to numbers, wandering in the wilderness, awaiting that deliverance of Canaan into Israel's hands. And the Christian life, Many times it depends on our, our decisions as to whether we have the fullness of eternal life or not right now. Now, if we're saved, Jesus promised to give eternal life to all who would believe on him. But the question becomes, how much of that eternal life are you enjoying at the present moment? Many of us think 
that we have to wait until we die and go to heaven in order to get eternal life. That's not when eternal life kicks in. You have eternal life if you're saved right now. How much of it you're enjoying, that is, how much of dominion over the things that God gives your gives under your purview, how much peace, how much tranquility, how much his blessing is on your life, how much you're like that tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in season, how much that looks like in your life right now depends on your relationship with his word and his laws and his commands. Jesus' commands are easy. It's not like the Mosaic law that they had to live up to. That they broke. That then brought the Palestinian covenant into force. That expelled them from the land. The land literally expelled Israel from it because of their grossness and their sin and their idolatry against God. Thank God that the promises made to us simply go like this. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, period. That's because of grace. That's because Jesus fulfilled everything that was required of the law in the Old Testament. You see, to them, there was a little caveat that went with that phrase. If you study that phrase in Deuteronomy, you'll find out there's a promise connected with it. There's a condition to, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Because God very clearly tells Israel, if you forsake me, I'll forsake you. But that's in the same context that he's saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So is God toying with them? Is he, is, he, is he? No, he's not. He never left. They did. God never moves. We do. And he spelled out to them exactly what would happen. They would go after their own lust, and they would be led astray after their own idolatry, and they would replace him. And they did he said, when you do that, not if, when you do that, why? Because the law is the schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ. They could have never measured up to it. Did God set them up for failure? No, they had every opportunity to obey the Mosaic covenant, to obey the Mosaic law, and enjoy all the blessings of the land. It's not God's fault that they didn't do it. It's their fault. And so you, any way we try to pin God with this, we can't. You see how that works? Because he's God, he's just, he's good. It's all because of Israel. But through their neglect of all of that, we get to enjoy the blessings because we're grafted in. Well, I don't want to get too far away from this, but I'm doing some groundwork because I want you to sense how the Psalter would, would be so moving for an Israelite as they lift up these songs. And I hope it'll challenge you to thumb through your hymnal and to look at the hymns of the faith that we have and to be able to let those words penetrate the depths of your heart and say, amazing grace. That is a sweet sound. It did save a wretch like me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from a Praise ye the Lord. All of these things will resonate deep within you because you'll know why you believe what you believe a little bit better, hopefully. So Israel follows this journey throughout their history. God made the Mosaic Covenant with them and they broke it. But God also made another promise to them. He promised that David's seed would always sit on the throne. Now, for those who were with us at the close of book three, I pointed that out. Remember, we talked about the question that was raised by the psalmist. Is the Davidic covenant null and void now? Because there's no son of David on the throne. As we speak, as we sit here right now in 2020 in Bruto, Colorado, in Jerusalem, there is no throne. There is no king that descends from David's bloodline ruling in Jerusalem. There is not one. 
there's a prime minister, there's uh, there's the governor that's over there, you have the, the president, you have their structure of government, which is a little different from ours, but they're still a, a, a free society as well, and um, they, they operate on democratic affairs and things, but there's no king. They don't have their king. So, but God promised that they would have one forever. And then we mentioned Jeconiah, didn't we? God promised that none of his children would ever sit on the throne of David. And we talked about how he got around that, God did, by allowing Jesus to be born of Mary and adopted by Joseph. That all works out according to the plan and the purview of God. So by the time we come to verse 1, David's on the throne, everything is good and well, and Israel is doing great, and, and there, there, there's peace around him, and, and David's going to have a son, and Solomon's going to sit on the throne. We've got a whole book of Proverbs from him. And everything's going well. And then book three comes and enemies begin to come. Because you remember, there was that moment in David's life where other kings went out to battle and he stayed back behind. And he looked, he lingered, he lusted. And you know the rest of the story as the preacher preached it. He fell into gross sin with Bathsheba. Their baby died. And God visited him with judgment. Now, David thought everything was swept under the rug. You know, after the child died, he just went on with business as usual. But it wasn't very long after that that a man who was a prophet, came to him, and Nathan was his name, and he told him a story, and he said, David, here's a guy that's got, uh, he's got one little ewe lamb, it's precious to him, it's like his daughter, and it's like family to him, and then his neighbor is rich, he's got all these ewe lambs, he's got plenty of lambs in his flock and his herd. Let me tell you what this man did, David. Although he has plenty of ewe lambs, he went and took this one, one man, this man's only ewe lamb, and served it up to his friends that were coming for dinner. David, what should we do to that rich guy that had all that and did this to this to this man that had this one new land? David rendered the decision, and his decision was he needs to be punished capitally, for lack of better terms, off with his head. And then, can you imagine me, Nathan? I don't know how he said it. I don't know. Thou art the man. You know, you always do preachers. You know, you want to thou art the man. I don't know. Maybe Nathan said it more like thou art the man. I don't know how how he said it. I like to read it with glorified imagination. But that at that moment, David's heart smote him because he knew. And through that, God promised, even though he forgave David of the sin and David got right with God, we have Psalm 51 in our Bible, which is a wonderful psalm. If you need healing and restoration, spiritual healing and cleansing from sin, Psalm 51, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose iniquity is covered. Thank God that there's healing and forgiveness, but the consequences remain. And God promised David the sword would never depart out of his hand. David continues on with business as usual. His children grow up and we find out Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. Amnon was lusting after his sister Tamar. He did wicked, wicked things to her that should never even be spoken of. But he did that because he had the wrong friends that told him he could have whatever he wanted. And he said no to God and he said yes to his own wicked lust. And he paid for it dearly in the end. He paid for it with his life because Tamar's full brother, because David had you know, different wives. And so Amnon was half-brother to, uh, to uh, uh, Absalom. Thank you. <laughs> I'm getting all these A names in my head. I'm not Hebrew. Adonijah, Absalom. Is a, okay, so we have Amnon who commits sin against Tamar, and you have Absalom, her full brother, who then takes retribution against Amnon. 
the sword never departed out of David's house. And even though he had had rest from his enemies round about, now there begins to be inner turmoil. By the time he hands the throne to Solomon, I don't know how much of a relationship David and Solomon had. You know, it's not like they went to the park and played every Saturday, if you know what I mean. Solomon inherits the throne through grievous circumstances. I mean, they had really had to work that in to, to make sure God's plan would, would happen. And Bathsheba is the one who eventually had to go to David and say, remember, you promised this. But now others are trying to come in and, and make a coup and take over the kingdom. And it's like the days of our lives, you know, it's like saga after saga, saga and drama after drama in David's life as he leaves this earth. And Israel now, after Solomon is gone, Rehoboam comes to the throne and the kingdom is split into civil war. And you have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the nation is divided. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Because Rehoboam didn't follow the counsel that he should have. And now the nation stands divided. What happened? What happened? From there, trace their story, and you're going to find the northern ten tribes. They go quick. I mean, it doesn't take any time, because um, uh, Jeroboam, leads them into such gross idolatry. He sets up an altar to Baal. He sets up altars up in the northern part of Israel. And he sets up an altar in the southern part of Israel. Why? So that his people in the north kingdom don't have to travel across the border down to the south kingdom to go down there to Jerusalem to worship like they're supposed to. We'll make it easy for everybody. We'll compromise. And we can worship here. And you can worship Jehovah right here. You don't have to go anywhere. That'll work. Why? So Jeroboam leads Israel into gross idolatry away from there are those that resisted. There were the faithful, you know, throughout. There's the remnant. It doesn't change the fact of the way the nation went. And pretty, pretty soon you have the king of Assyria knocking on their door, coming from the north. And the reason we have the Samaritans by the time we come to the New Testament is because Assyria took, the, took captive the northern ten tribes and brought in a totally new population and repopulated the area who then embraced what Israel believed but made their own. And so that's why Jesus must needs go to Samaria. And you have this woman by the well of Sychar who's worshiping at Jacob's well. And you guys worship down there. We worship up here. And Jesus says, you know not what you worship. You don't have this thing figured out yet. And then she receives, she realizes he's the promised one. He's Messiah. So God sends this well. Well, I get ahead of myself. Ten tribes going to captivity. How long after that was it? We can count on our hand the number of good kings. And my brother Mike's going to teach through a little bit of that coming up. We have those those good kings that they, they're like a, a light in a dark place. You know, they're a gem shining in, in this midst of crookedness and perversity. And they all make decisions. By the end of it all, you have the southern kingdoms, the two tribes in the, in the southern kingdoms wind up. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar knocking on the door. It was the king of Assyria that took the north, and Babylon swallowed up Assyria. Now you're going to have the king of Babylon come and take the rest of what remains captive. Book three of the Psalter. What happened? And there's some remnants of this even later in book four and book five. Book five particularly. Because they're in Babylon by that time. They're in exile. And it looks like the Davidic covenant is null and it's not going to happen. But yet God said it would. And somehow we've got to hold out hope that God's going to have his man on the throne. 
And so those in Babylon are saying, hey, let's hear some of those nice songs of Zion that you all, you know, you're known for, and, and all that temple worship that you let's get the symbols out and let's, you know, let's praise. And they say, How can we do how can you ask us to do that when our hearts are hanging on the river? Book three. You get to experience the depths of when a nation walks away from God and goes their own way. And I tell you, in our country, we're probably in more of a book three time. I wish we were in a book one time. I wish we were in a book five time, you know, the, the end of it all. Psalm 150, by the way, is the doxology to the entire book. Just like Psalm 1 was the preface, Psalm 150 is the closing of the whole thing. And so that's it's all praise. Now, I've, I've set you up so that you can understand a little bit better book four. Book four Along with book three, they both, my understanding is they have 17 psalms in them. If I counted them right, maybe I missed one somewhere. I'm terrible at math, but I think each one had 17 psalms. The difference between book four and book three is that book four only has three laments. Only three. Book four is going to take you from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. That's book four. What is it? Psalm to 90 to 106. And how do we know when the book is closing in the Psalter and a new book's opening? Because it ends with that double amen. Praise you, the Lord. The call to praise and then the double amen. The book closes and then the new book opens. Book four opens with the only, the only psalm that we have attributed to Moses. The only one. Book four. Why did we have to wait for book four? To get back to Moses. Because wasn't he all the way back in Exodus? I would think that we'd want this Mosaic Psalm in book two, right? I mean, that's if we're following the Pentateuch layout. That's Exodus deliverance. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 teaches us the number. I think it is the fitting psalm that we need to have to open book four. Because we have just come through a lamentable time in book three. Some of the most, the most difficult psalm I've ever preached is Psalm 88. Hands down. That was the hardest one I've ever done. And I wanted to just keep going into Psalm 89. I didn't want to just preach Psalm 88. But I had to stay true to the scriptures, right? We've got to preach the whole council. By the time we come to Psalm 90, it's like God says, you ready to hit the reset button? Aren't you glad we serve a God of second, third, million chances? I am. And it's almost like in the Psalter, Israel is saying, you know, where did we get off on this thing? Where did we go wrong? Why does it look like there's no king? The whole question of Psalm 89 is, are you going to be true to the Davidic covenant that you made in 2 Samuel 7, Jehovah? Are, are you going to maintain that? Or is that promise true? The end of the conclusion is, yes, he will, but it will be in his time, according to his way, and for a season, because of their gross sin and their idolatry, they're going to have to live for a period of time in his chastening when there is no, no king on this earthly throne. But remember, our God is an eternal God. And just because he isn't physically here doesn't mean he's not fulfilling the promise that God made. God keeps his word, even when we can't see it. He's still upholding it. But that's hard for us, isn't it? When we have to wait, and we have to live here and now when it looks like there's nothing going on in that spectrum and things aren't happening the way that the Bible says that they should happen and it's not on our timetable. 
it will occur. It will happen. And Psalm 89 leaves us with that hope that, yeah, it may not all be perfect right now, but God's going to fix it. There's hope. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Troublesome times are here. Silly men's hearts and spirits. We talked about that. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is coming. Just like he said he would. And we can have hope in that promise. Even when the world around us says, where's the sign of his coming? Where's the sign of his coming? We say, he's coming. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change the fact that he is coming. And he will rule and reign just like he said he would. And he's going to fix all that's wrong with this earth. He's going to rule it with a rule of peace for a thousand years of millennial reign. All of that is still yet to transpire. But Psalm 90, book 4 opens, and it's almost like we have to say, you know, where did we go wrong on this whole thing? Let's just go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Moses. Let's go back to Sinai. Because I, I think if we deal with some things there, We'll see why we're in the state we're in here. That's a good, that's a good model, I think. That, that'd be a good application. Application being the key word. Would to God more people in our country would do the same thing and say, where did we get so wrong in murdering babies? And I mean, the list goes on. I don't want to get political on you here in this message. It's my intent. But you understand, our nation is broken in so many ways. And if we just stick our head in the sand and pretend that nothing is wrong, we're fools to do that. There has been a subversiveness that has sought to destroy America for generations. For generations. Okay. And I'm not, you know, spreading propaganda here. I have researched it. And this is peer-supported, peer-reviewed research. The facts don't lie. You know why we're in the state we're in? Is because, well, we live in Colorado. Just kidding. That's, uh, you'll think about that later. Go, oh, that's what he's talking about. Why are we where we are? Because someone made a decision generations ago, decades ago, that allowed the subversion of the foundation that this country was built on. And they infiltrated government. They infiltrated the political system, they infiltrated the judicial system, they infiltrated the executive system, Hallelujah, we're holding on to a thread there, uh, they infiltrated the educational system, they inf infiltration has occurred. You've seen the things, as I have, you know about communist agenda and, things, and all the things that were on their list to take down a country and make it socialist in the end. How many of those do we have left to go through in our country before we're totally Marxist? in our philosophy and makeup. That's not where this country begins. Historically, it's not. And I don't care how much they try to rewrite the history books and lie to you and tell you that we came from somewhere we didn't. You go back and you look at the sources and you can get all the way back to where public schools even started in the country. You know why public schools were brought into America? It was because we had little colonies popping up everywhere, little little community groups, and uh, they, they were farming, and they were very agricultural and very hands-on, but there wasn't a lot of book learning. Many, many people were illiterate and could not even read. And so they said, you know, with every new little area that builds up, let's make sure we've got, you know, the hospital facilities, let's make sure we've got the, 
the, the community facilities, but in the middle of it all, accessible to everybody, let's make sure there's a schoolhouse where the kids can come and we'll give them their primer, we'll have the mom there, we'll have the teacher, and we can, we can educate them, we can teach them to read, no joke, so that they can learn to read the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E, 1960, what happened? It didn't happen overnight. Bible and prayer, okay. You see where we're at, we're in a mess. Would to God, maybe we could go back and kind of like Psalm 90 here. You know, where did this all go wrong? Let, let's go back to Sinai. Let's go back to Moses. Let's go back to that Mosaic covenant. Boy, if Israel would have just done what God had told them to do originally, they wouldn't be where they are. They would not be where they are. They would have served him wholeheartedly with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, and they wouldn't have gotten astray. Oh, pastor, that's all fine and good, you know, but we can't go back and change it now. Neither could they. Neither could they. And they're coping, if you want to call it that. They're learning to live with the consequences of their fallen nature and their, their inclination to wander from God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Would to God America could get on her knees and go back to where she was founded. I'm not saying all of our founders were you know, fundamental Bible-believing Christians. Some of them were Jesus, but at least there was a consensus of Judeo-Christian heritage that was centered primarily around the Bible, and the Bible had a central role in the founding of this country. Only two nations on the earth that historically has ever happened, Israel and America. You don't believe me? Go get the Colorado legislator law books. There's voluminous. If you need help going to sleep at night, I've got just the answer for you. I mean, there's just volumes and volumes, and you read through that. And I guarantee you, if you know your, your books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you know those books, then when you read that, you're going to read a phrase and go, well, they didn't quote chapter and verse, but that's where that came from. There was a day in our country where Blackstone's, Blackstone's materials were foundational for law, but we went away from that. And we started going after case law. We got on a slippery slope because now everything is malleable and moldable. We look back at case precedent and we say, well, this case, you know, the decision was rendered here for this. So we're going to make our decision here for this. Up to that point, decisions were, okay, go to Blackstone. What did Blackstone say? Blackstone was very biblical based. Why do you think they'd want to remove that if, if there's an agenda to destroy this fabric and the Warp and woof of our country. Why would they want to get rid of Blackstone? Why would they want to throw Bible out of their schools? Why would they want to? We're in a mess. Could we not hit the reset button, go back, and say, where did we get? Where did we go wrong? I wish to God we could. But you and I now are believers, and we believe the Bible, and we're living in a broken country. We're living in in a broken society with broken people all around us. What do we do? Hey, Book Four is a great book. There are three laments. Let me break it down for you with just the brief moments I have remaining. Uh, one person said this about the psalm. The Psalter is a theater where God allows us to behold both himself and his works. A most pleasant green field, a vast garden, where we see all manner of flowers, a paradise, having the most delicious flowers and fruits, a great sea in which 
are hid costly pearls, a heavenly school where we have God for our teacher, a compend of all scripture, a mirror of divine grace reflecting the face of our heavenly father and the anatomy of our souls. Wow. The Psalter. Savoring the Psalter. Looking at the book of Psalms. This is the book of praises, right? The Hebrew title is, um, is the book of praises in Hebrew. That's what it means. If that's the title, then why is there so much crying? Why is there so much lament? Well, it is a fitting title because it opens with praise and it closes with praise. Book four begins a segment of this book of Psalms that we begin to climb out of the darkness a little bit and we get to peek our head over and see some of the light and the glory of a messianic hope that the Bible provides. And while Israel sits with no, no Davidic king on their throne, and the world continues on as it was, and the world is saying, where's the sign of his coming? We can peek over and see, it's not going to be long now. I see the signs happening all around me. Could this be the day? Jesus is coming. Is this going to be the day? I can't wait to see it unveil and transpire. Now the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ shall rise. We, we know that the New Testament teaches that about, about us. But I mentioned in book four, there are a total of three lament psalms that I can find. Let me give you kind of a, an overview. There's not many we have to go through. So let's, um, I, I, don't, I think I'm on good ground in doing this. I'm not using too much of my art, artistry, and you're not going to see too much of me in this if we just hold on. There's a logical way that it flows. If we take each one of the laments, since we're coming out of book three, which was had the most laments in it out of all the books, we're in book four. Each one of these will begin with a lament, but then come out in praise. Begin with a lament, come out with praise, a royalty. Begin with a lament, come out with praise. If you take all 17 of them with the three laments, you're going to find there's four psalms in the first, there's eight psalms in the next, and five in the other one. That should total 17 if I did my math right. Four, eight, five. Okay. The first four begins with a lament. The next eight begins with a lament. The last five in book four begins with a lament. But that's where the lament ends. Psalm 90 would be our lament. Psalm 94 would be our lament. And Psalm 102 would be our lament. A lament psalm is a sad psalm. We have a whole book in our Bible called Lamentations, where the weeping prophet is weeping over the state of Jerusalem. So yes, we begin by pouring our heart out to God and say, we need to consider our days. As book four opens... We have this quartet of psalms, if you will, led by that first lament, but it climbs to a trust that ends in praise. Follow along with me. Psalms 90 to 93. Psalm 90, if we were to summarize the whole thing, we would walk away with this, with this aspect, that it's a song of lament, that we are to consider God's eternality contrasted with man's frailty, man's finiteness. 
man's mortality. You see, God is eternal. We are finite. Teach us to number our days. You're the infinite one. Teach us to count them. James tells us our life is but a vapor. And so as we lament the fact that we only have so much time in this earthly life to deal, deal with things, we know God works on an eternal timetable. And Psalm 90 ends with the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Lord, if anything's going to last after I'm gone, you're going to have to do it. I only have so much time to work with. Yea, the work of our hands established value. See, there comes a time where we must commit this to the Lord's keeping and know that what we're doing for Him down here will be carried on. That's the first lament. Now, the second psalm in this, in this segment would be Psalm 91, right? So Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Is that one of your favorite devotional psalms? It is one of mine. Dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty. And these themes are threaded throughout the Psalms. Such imagery, such vividness. Under the shadow of the Almighty's wings. David loves, loves that. Now, what is this? This is Psalm 91. There's no inscription. There's no inscription. So we read Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. We just keep going. And we have two back to back here. This is a song of trust. It teaches us to trust God. To trust in His protection during times of Christ's crisis. If you look through Psalm 91, a thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. God's going to protect, he's going to watch over, he's going to provide. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Yeah, there's going to be difficult times, but you need to learn to trust God. Psalm 91. Psalm 92. This is a song of praise where we begin to thank God. We thank Jehovah. Israel is thanking Jehovah for victory. Psalm 92, it's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. You see how it's a thanksgiving song? It's a praise of thanksgiving. Give thanks unto the Lord. Sing praises unto thy name. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. That it's a praise song. It's not a lament. It's a thanksgiving song. David, what did he look like with his heart? I saw a picture of uh, David in something I was reading yesterday, and I counted the strings on his heart because I just wanted to see if the artist was going to be true to Scripture. This many strings he had on his heart. He had Ten strings on that. I counted every one of them. Maybe I'm going cross-eyed and there's eleven there, but I counted ten strings. On an instrument of ten strings will I praise thee. On the psaltery, upon the harp, to the solemn sound, for thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the work of thy hands. You see how we are giving praise and thanking God for victory? So we begin with lament, but then we learn to trust God and we thank Him for the victories that He gives in the midst of all that's going on. And then this segment continues with praising, exalting Jehovah because he's king over all the earth. Five verses in Psalm 93. Only five verses. But what a, what a psalm. The Lord reigneth. Wait a minute. What about that Davidic covenant thing? The Lord reigneth. Are you sure? The Lord reigneth. Period. That's ETH. Continually. There's never a time that God abdicates his rule over his creation. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Now, I've got, to, I've got to tell you this. Psalm 93 to Psalm 100 has been notated by more than one commentator that I read in a lot of scholarship on the Psalms. 
points to this, that this would be uh, the epicenter of the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 93 to 100. It's just like the floodgates open. And it's psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm. Praise after praise after praise after praise. God is king. God is king. God is king. God is king. Jehovah rules. Jehovah reigns. Jehovah's in majesty. It's just boom, boom, boom. One right after the other. It's, it's the epicenter. Psalm 94 begins an octet of psalms that is led with a second lament, but it's followed by praises climaxing to Messiah's royalty. There's eight psalms here. The first lament is in Psalm 94. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. O God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Show thyself. What? You just said the Lord reigneth. And now you're saying, where are you at? Show thyself. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? That's the end of lament for this section of eight. The next psalm, Psalm 95, is calling for worship and obedience to God. Psalm 95, uh, he, he breaks forth and he says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come before his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is great and a great, what? King above all gods. Bless you. And so we call for worship and obedience to God. We need to obey Him. Psalm 95 teaches us that. Psalm 96 continues a praise song for the King who reigns in gloriousness. No, that's Psalm 96, sorry. That's Psalm 97. I'm getting my notes mixed up here. Psalm 96 is what we're on, right? Psalm 96 would be the King coming in judgment. Let's see if we can find that here. Do you see it? Verse 7, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. That sounds like another psalm I know. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord riding upon the waters, the king coming. Who is this king of glory? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Psalm 24, this is getting ready to tell us about a king. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Yeah. Let the field be joyful, all that is therein. Before the Lord, for he cometh, verse 13, for he cometh to judge the earth, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So what is Psalm 96 telling us? There's a king who's coming in judgment. We praise him for that. We praise him for his glorious reign, verse uh, Psalm 97. We praise him for the salvation and the judgment that he brings, Psalm 98. We praise him. Because he's a holy king, Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God, verse 9, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. We praise him for his holiness. So that's that section of eight. Almost. I, I've got to cover the last one. Psalm, Psalm 100 and Psalm 101. Those two I didn't cover. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. There's five verses here. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. What are we encouraged to do in Psalm 100? Because he's holy. Because he brings salvation and judgment. Because he reigns in gloriousness. Because he's coming in judgment. Because we worship and obey him. Psalm 100 says we worship him with joy. What a great God we serve. 
we have such joy because of what God does for his people in their hearts and lives. And then Psalm 101, this is the only royal psalm uh, that's pointed out for a specifically royal psalm. Now, Psalm 93 to 100, they have sentiments of royalty in them, don't they? They're talking about kings coming in, and the king worship, you know, is, is, we need to worship the king. And he's beautiful in his holiness, and this is our king. Psalm 101 is a royal psalm, and this is David's promise to act with integrity. Because of what we know, Lord, because of who you are, and because of how your word is revealed, I'm going to act with integrity. Look at Psalm 101. It's the Psalm of David. That's what the inscription says. Which is interesting because in this portion of the book of Psalms, many of them are anonymous. So when it tells you who wrote it, it's important. Many of these are anonymous. But this one is by David. He says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Hey, young man, that's a good verse for you to memorize. Hint, hint. If you're going to walk with integrity, if you're going to uphold, uphold accountability, you need to memorize this verse and live by it. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before my, my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. He closes Psalm 101. David does. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land. Would to God. Our country could stand behind a king that would, or a ruler that would say that, huh? I will destroy the wicked off the land, the wicked of the land. I don't know about you, but well, I was, I will, I'll just continue on with the psalm here. That I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Thank God, Solomon is dead. I said it. There, I can move on. A royal psalm. Promising that this ruler is going to now I'm okay, let me clarify. I feel bad now. I just said, thank you, Lord, that this person is dead. Why did I say that? Because he is a wicked man that is responsible for the death of how many people? And Americans at that. I'm not thankful that he's dead necessarily. I wish he would have just changed. But I'm thankful he can't do any more harm. There, I clarified it. Lord, you know my heart. We need to act with integrity towards the king, Jehovah. Psalm 101. Now, we have five more psalms, and you're holding on. You're doing good with me here. We're almost done. We have five more psalms in this overview. Psalm 102 to 106. One of my favorite psalms in the whole Psalter is nestled here. Psalm 103. I turn to this psalm more than any other, almost, because the Lord knows our frame. He considers it our dust. What a great truth. Okay, this quintet of psalms. So we had a quartet, we had an octet, now we have a quintet. How's that, Brother Mike? This quintet of psalms, this five section of five psalms, begins with a lament, right? But then it ends with praise. And that's how book four closes, with nothing but praise. Nothing but praise to our God. So what's the lament? Psalm 102, uh, we're lamenting, we're pleading for, for not only personal help, we are pleading for God to help our nation. That's what Israel is, is praying here in Psalm 102. Lord, help me. Lord, help my country. That's a good prayer for you as an American. Lord, help me be who I ought to be. Lord, help our nation get to where she needs to be as well. And God bless liberty and justice for all. That's what America stands for. Now, after we lament, we turn our eyes to praise. And we thank Jehovah. Psalm 103, we thank him. 
because he is the most loving, he is the most compassionate God you will ever know. There is no God like him. He is incomparable. He loves you. He loves you. And he loves me. And his mercy is on everyone that fears him. And if you'll reach out to him, he's already reaching down to you with compassion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. He forgives all your iniquities, not just some of them, not just the ones that you want him to forgive really bad. All of them. The big ones, the little ones, everything in between, everything that goes in the trash can, he forgives it all. It's all trash. It's all garbage, right? Big trash, little trash, it doesn't matter. He forgives all your iniquities. He healeth all thy diseases. Hey, that's a good backdrop for our Sunday morning message this morning, wasn't it? Healing. That's found through the Lord. He'll help you. He satisfies all of that beautiful psalm. Well, I move on. Psalm 104 calls us to praise Jehovah for his creation, for his providence. Pro video, to see before providence. God already sees it before it happens. He's providentially aware of your circumstances right now. By the way, he created the earth. The worlds were framed by the power of his word. And he sees everything that happens before it happens. That's awesome. That's just awesome. I mean, sincerely, that should bring us to our knees in awe. Who is like that? Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Look at what he did. Just read Psalm 104. See all that he did in creation. And then learn to wait on him. Wait on his providence. Praise Jehovah. Okay, we've got two more. Psalm 105 is a praise to Jehovah for all of his work that he's done on behalf of Israel. Now we get specific with the nation of Israel. And these last two psalms are specifically for Israel. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Here we go. Remember, verse 5, his marvelous works that he hath done. Whoa, stop right there. we got a whole series of messages. <laughs> We're going through them on Wednesday night. You can catch up with us as we begin through Exodus this Wednesday night. We're gonna, I'm, I'm excited. I'm just thrilled to get into the book of Exodus with you on Wednesday night. I am yearning for that. I can't wait to unfold all that the Lord has been giving me on that. Remember all the things that he's done. There's a lot. There's a lot that he did for Israel. He's the same God today, by the way. If he did that then, what can he do now? What does he want to do in your life? Praise him for his work, specifically on behalf of Israel in Psalm 105, and then for how faithful he has been Psalm 106, throughout Israel's history, how faithful was he to her? Even when she went away from him, how faithful was Jehovah to Israel? That's a good, uh, good model of faithfulness for our relationships today. Even when others don't treat us the way that we think they should or the way that they should, we can still be faithful. We can still be faithful. Between God, we can still do the right thing. And we follow his example. You want the prophet that spells all this out? <laughs> go read Hosea and Gomer's uh, whole saga there. 
What a mess. Okay, be careful when you read it, all right? I made a mistake as a, as a young Christian. I just got into ministry, and I thought I was going to do some great marital counseling. This guy was duly saved. He didn't really know much about the Bible. I told him to go read him there. The worst advice I could have ever given anyone. There you go. I did it. I shouldn't have done that. I should have sent him to a totally different book. I should have. Looking back on it, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I think I casted some pearls before swine that day. I really did. Hosea and Gomer. I mean, Hosea is a picture of Israel. Of of, of um, Hosea is a picture of Jehovah, and Gomer is a picture of Israel. And what did Hosea do? Oh, by the way, it's a picture of our Jesus because Jesus is Jehovah. What did He do for us? He bought us back. He redeemed us from the slave market of sin. That's the plot of Hosea and Gomer. And so how faithful was he throughout Israel's history? Psalm 106, the 48 verses that are there cover that. All that God did in his faithfulness to Israel. Okay, now hold on now. I'm going to give you something to chew on. I'm, I'm not real big, okay, I'm not a numerologist, okay? I don't look at every minutiae of numbers in the Bible and, you know, try to rest this into that and but I just made some observations because I do think numbers are important. We have a whole book of the Bible named Numbers. So numbers must matter to God. So just in the basics of it, if we look at numbers and just do the easy part, okay, we'll do number one, that's the Father. Number two, that's the Son. Number three, that's the Holy Spirit. By the time you get to three, you have the complete triune Godhead. That's completeness. How many sections, how many laments are there in book four? There's three. That shows us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work, and He hears us when we cry. I'm just kind of making some application here, but they don't read too much into it. How many were in in that first section under that lament? We had a lament followed by three. One was a trust song, two was a praise song. I don't want to get too technical on this, but there was a total of four. So if we keep going, we have one, the Father, two, the Son, three, the Holy Spirit. We have the triune Godhead in three, four would be the work of his creation. In the beginning, God created and the work of his hands. So through that section, we see God is he's in control of it all. Even when we don't understand it, we can learn to trust him. Now we have eight in the next section. Eight would be the number of new beginnings, right? Because you have seven and he rested. The eight would be the new beginning. So in the middle section of this book, we have eight psalms. One of them begins with a lament. The next six would be the praise songs and the thanksgiving songs, and then the royal psalm concludes that whole section, that octet. You have eight, that would be like a new beginning. Hey, God created it once in the beginning. We're going to start over and do things right. Remember we started before with looking at Moses? Let's go back to where we got this thing wrong, and God's going to give us a new beginning. One day Jesus is coming, and he's going to hit the reset button in a huge way. This earth is going to be like the Garden of Eden again, and it's going to be a reign of peace for a thousand years. I've already mentioned that, but boy, I yearn for that to come. God is a God of new beginnings. And in the next section, how does this all come about? Well, how many were there? We had five. So if we keep going, one, the Father, two, the Son, three, the Holy Spirit, four, his creative work, his creation, five would be the redemption that comes through grace, and five would be the number of grace. Uh, because he created mankind, mankind fell, we need a redeemer. And so the pinnacle of his creation needs his intervention. So the book closes, book four closes with five psalms. One of them was lament, the last four turn our praise to our Redeemer 
He's going to make it all right in the end. And he's intricately concerned. He is faithful to uphold his work of salvation to all that would believe. He knows our frame. We are but dust. You see, Psalm, the book four of the Psalter is just, it's magnificent to me. And I've only given you just snippets, okay? But when you add them all up, if I did my math right, there's 17, right? 10 plus 7. So you have two numbers of complete completion. It's as complete as complete can get by the time you take all 17 together. Now, don't get too crazy on that numbers and stuff. If you, if you want to know where I research some of that, um, Bullinger, be careful with Bullinger. But uh, numbers in the scripture, he wrote a book on that. And so he kind of breaks down what I just gave you in a nutshell, one, two, three, four, five, and then I look at eight, and then I look at 17, and that's where I was able to kind of see, oh, this is really neat. By the time you take the numbers and see how the Psalms are all fit where they are, I do believe God's hand is in that. Our creator is a magnificent God, and though we mess it up, he's going to give us a new beginning. And by the time it's all said and done, it will be because of his grace, because of his goodness, and his faithfulness, that we'll be able to say, as the psalm, the book four closes, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, this ought to sound familiar, and let all the people say, Amen. Don't stop there. Praise you the Lord. Amen. Praise you the Lord. Aren't you thankful? We serve a good God. And aren't you so thankful? Jesus is coming again. And that might be before today is over.